Good evening, everyone. Happy Friday. Okay, most all of you are dead. Okay, so it's been a long week. But cheer up. You're nearing the end. Not only the end of the week, but the end of the narrative. So for those of you who have been here all week, you know what we've been about. For those of you who might be just joining us for the weekend, we here in Young Adults have been going through the book of Job, all 42 chapters of it. And that does sound really, you know, just overwhelming, Uh, but hopefully it's been a blessed journey so far for those of you who have been here. And for those of you who are just getting here, just know that each one of these messages has been building on the last one. So therefore, if there are things that get brought up that you're like, I don't know what he's referring to, or wait a minute, where's the background of that, and how do, you, how do you deal with that? The good news for you is that we've been recording these, and you can go to the camp meeting website, and all of the audio is there. So if you have a great desperation tomorrow while you're standing in line 500 hours waiting to get to whatever potluck meal you're trying to get to as the rose walk is clogged and moving slower than a herd of turtles in a field of peanut butter, then you can just put on your latest messaging app, your wonderful podcasting app whatever you can put in the earbuds and hear my voice continue to just lull you into a sense of insanity as you're going down the walkway. So there is a possibility for that. Uh, But tonight we are finally moving into the second of three big pieces as to the solution to the answers to suffering and evil that Job has been going through. We saw that last night, right, God began to speak. He shows up and he gives a couple of key bits of information to Job. The first one, he says he reminds him of the limits to his knowledge, not to shut him up, but just so that he's ready to understand things that are beyond him or beyond things he could have imagined. And then God begins to tell him all about the source of all true evil and suffering and about a rebellion that's been foisted upon God. And God in the creature of Leviathan begins to explain what happened in the first two chapters and about this intergalactic war that's been going on and then God drops him in to know that pain is not just his problem pain is not just a human problem it is a universal problem and it's a problem for God and that the entire creation the entire universe is suffering and feels it deeply just like Job has been feeling this suffering deeply Right, So we ended last night with this idea of like, okay, that's cool. God helps explain to him where it's coming from, but how does it end? Is that just where he leaves it? Like, well, I know it stinks, but don't worry. At least you know where it came from, but I'm not going to do anything about it. Well, good thing is the book isn't done, so God's going to start telling us about how he's going to deal with it. And tonight, I am super excited if you've been here for the whole week, because tonight we get to talk about something that I wish someone had told me decades ago. It is something I did not even realize. I had been in the church. I had been baptized. I had been led, and I had no idea until only a few years ago, and it's totally turned my world upside down, or should I say, right side up. So hopefully I've really milked this for you. We're going to look at it tonight, and we see the evidence to what this thing is in Job. But first, before I do that, I'm going to take a moment and ready myself before God with another word of prayer. I want to invite you where you are, if you would just bow your heads and ask the Lord to speak to your heart individually, that your heart and your mind would be open and receptive to the message God has tailor prepared for you this evening. Pray for those around you that they would also receive a blessing. And while you're at it, go ahead and pray that I would be hidden behind the text and that we would see the message God has for us clearly tonight. And after a few moments of silence, I'll bring us together out loud in a close of that prayer. And we'll get started with our message this evening. I will accept him. So let's just take a moment and go before the Lord in prayer.
Father, it's been quite the journey. And in many ways, I hope our hearts have been, have been touched, have been given new hope as we've begun to see things maybe we've never seen before. We now see a whole lot, as Job does, about where evil and suffering is coming from. We, we have renewed hope that it's not from you, but we still have the question, how does it end? Are we just stuck in this? Please show us clearly from your word yet another blessing. Show us the answer that we seek. For we ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You have your Bibles or your PowerPoint. By PowerPoint, I mean you power on the Bible app and you point to where you're going. You go to Job, the 42nd chapter. Job, chapter 42, you're going to notice that's actually the last chapter in this book. But we're going to spend two messages in the last chapter because a lot is going on in that last chapter. We move out of the poetry and back into the narrative, um, hard narrative, and it's Job 42. Now, this is right after God has just finished speaking about the problem of suffering, where it comes from, that the whole universe is under suffering, that they're all experiencing it together, that God feels it intimately and he's just as bothered with it as Job is. And then we get to pick up the story right here in chapter 42, starting in verse 1. Are you there? All right, good. Here we go. Starting in verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, so he just heard everything we heard yesterday. Verse 2, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted, who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. So right off the bat, Job is basically saying this. He goes, wow, okay, listening to what you're telling me, God, I do realize that you can do everything, that you're aware of everything, that you, you must have, he's basically hinting at it, you must have a solution because your purposes will happen. If this bothers you, you're going to do something about it. And then he admits something in verse 3, he goes, I spoke things I didn't understand. Now what he's talking about is all of the questionings and all of the venting and all of the ranting and all he's been doing and all the chapters in between this. And he admits these things were beyond me. I didn't know them. Basically, I didn't know what was going on in chapters 1 and 2. I didn't know about evil and that this is hurting your heart. I didn't know all of that. The implication being, I know now. And then I just love where he goes, verse 4. Hear now and I will speak. I will ask you and you instruct me. Okay, so he's like, all right, God, all right, hear this. I just want to tell you something. And, and you clear me up if I'm wrong on this too. And then he says this beautiful thing. I love this verse, verse 5. I have heard of you by the hearing of the what? Of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Do you see the change of, of knowledge here? He goes, I, before I just thought I knew I'd heard of you. I, I, I thought I knew things about you. I thought I had it all figured out. I had my theology all kind of lined up and just thought, ah, this makes sense. Surely I have the truth. He goes, I had heard these things, but now through this experience, through you talking with me, through the explanations you have given, now I really see you. It's like a revelation has taken place. He goes, now I actually know who you are. Well, that's a profound change. He goes, I, I, I see you. And then now that he's seen him, he admits something. Verse 6. Therefore I, I retract and I repent in dust and ashes. 
It's like you get this idea that there's this moment of clarity and he sees God for who he really is and he basically then says as he sees God, I look at myself with disgust. Like, how could I have thought that about you? And then he says this thing, this dust and ashes thing. To us, it's just kind of like, okay, that's a little weird. But this is something that they did in the ancient Far East, basically when you were trying to say that you were torn up to the core about something. He basically goes, I feel so, I'm so angry with myself that I would have thought all of this, that I would have said all of this, and it's eating me alive inside. I just feel, I don't know how I could have done this. And in that moment of him just realizing how good God was versus how bad he thought he was and realizing what God knew and how God is affected versus not, and he says this, now God does something amazing in the narrative just when you think God's done. But he's not done because now the Lord is going to talk again. He does speak again, but this time he's not speaking directly to Job. Verse 7, it came about after the Lord had spoken these words to Job that the Lord said to Eliphaz the Timite, oh, this is going to be good. Remember the guy with the demon vision? <laughs> the one that kind of ringleaded everybody to come and uh, say all those things. He speaks to him now. He goes, my wrath is kindled against you. Uh-oh. And against your two friends, because you have not spoken of me what is what? What is right as my servant what? As my servant Job has. Okay. Has anyone got a problem with that statement? Has anyone noticed that in the text so far? Like, you'll see this over and over again in Job, and I think this is one of the reasons why a lot of people, we've just misread Job for so many years, is because every time they'll say, Job didn't sin with his lips, and Job didn't do this, and he still did not sin, and then, oh, well, here's God saying he spoke what was right, but now that we've gone through it, it's very clear that he had some wrong ideas. It's very clear at one point, remember, in the text, that he is, he is basically teetering on not only losing faith, but acting just like Satan. Remember the I will, I will, I will, I will, I will. Right, I mean, he was teetering. That How can God say, you know, ta-da, fantastic Job? He's not done. Verse 8. Now, therefore, take for yourself seven bulls, seven rams, and go where? To my servant Job, and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves, and then it gets weird. Like that, if he stopped it there, it would kind of make sense to a Jew reading this or anyone else. If he was just like, okay, you suck, now repent and offer the sacrifices, and I'll forgive you, he'd be like, that makes sense, you know, they really need to repent. Okay, but then he adds this new twist. Okay, go offer it, middle of verse 8, and my servant Job will pray for you. And then he says this next bit. For I will accept who? Him or Job or his prayer so that I may not do with you according to what? According to your folly or your mistakes or your screw-ups, right? Because you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Timite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did as the Lord told them, and then the next weird phrase, and the Lord accepted Job. Is that not weird? Has anyone ever read that and just been like, wait, wait, what's going on? Right, God goes to them and then goes, okay, you have messed up. I need you to offer sacrifices, and you're going to offer them, and then Job is going to pray for you, and when he prays for you, I am then 
going to forgive all the nasty things you said because I will accept, not you, I will accept Job. Right? I mean, he's like, what? I mean, is God just like playing favorites? Is he ticked off at the three friends to the point where it's like impossible for them to be forgiven now? Well, hopefully if you read the narrative at this point, that's not consistent with the God that we've seen. That wouldn't make sense. So something else must be going on. And here's the beauty of this, because where have the three friends been this whole time? They've been with Job. So here's the thing that is kind of hinted in the text. Think about this. When God was speaking with Job, who was sitting there the whole time? The three friends. So they witnessed all this. Now, remember the setup to this. God has just explained where the evil came from. And Job's now like, wow, I had no idea. And then he, like us, are waiting. He's like, you instruct me, basically. He says it again. How does this end? And then God, to demonstrate how it ends, gives an object lesson. He says, ah, you want that answer, Job? Because Job just says, you instruct me. Tell me. Because I repent of what I've said. I'm now ready. What's the solution? I know you can do it. I know you must have a purpose. You can do all things. What is the solution? And God goes, all right, you want to know the solution? Here it is. Uh, You three are wrong. You have committed folly. You've done really dumb stuff. You've not said the right thing. So you're going to offer sacrifice, and this guy over here is going to pray for you, and as he prays for you, I'm going to accept him, and that's the solution. I don't know if anyone is starting to pick up on something here. This guy over here is going to intercede for you, and after he's done interceding for you, I will accept him. And somehow the acceptance of him is going to make you acceptable. Is anyone seeing this yet? This should be a big like ding, ding, ding. If you've been in the church any amount of time. The object lesson, I will say it again, is that someone is going to intercede for you for your mistakes. And I will accept that person to atone for your mistakes. Therefore, the acceptance of him will make you acceptable. Yeah, I'm already hearing it. Some of you are already seeing this. This is beautiful. You didn't know this was in Job, did you? (laughs) Oh, friends, I can't wait. Oh, this is the thing I've been waiting for. This is what, no, no, I'm serious. Oh, man, I'm going to get giddy on this. This This is just, wait, hold on to your seats. Buckle in. Here we go. God is giving him an illustration that says the way this ends is someone is going to intercede because of your folly through all this pain and suffering and everything going on, and it's through that person's work that you will be accepted. And what he's, of course, alluding to here is the Messiah. What is the solution? God's had a solution all along. It's going to be the one who intercedes, the one whom God will accept. And here is this... Oh, oh, this is so exciting. Because most of us, when we start thinking about Jesus, this is what we think. We think the first part of the illustration. We think about the sacrifice part. Don't we? Here's what I mean by this. Right? We get that we've messed up. Like that, that's not like a new surprising doctrine if you've been around Christianity for a while. Everyone's like, you have sinned, you've fallen short, you've messed up, there's evil, you suffer, you say the wrong things about God, etc., etc. And we're like, you need to repent. Right? You need to feel sorry, just like Job. And then you, you go and you're like, I'm sorry. You ask for repentance and the blood, right? The sacrifice, it takes care of it. Jesus died on the cross and ta-da, you're taken care of, right? But this is normally, actually, even when I was growing up, that's normally where it stops. 
That's what I mean by this. They say, good news, Jesus died on the cross for you. He's taken away the debt. And we say that now that he's done that, you have the ability to get your life together so that he can come back for you. You tracking what I'm saying there? Right? In other words, we say the cross gets you to zero. You're in debt. It wipes it out. You're at zero. And then the church can spend the rest of their time fighting over how you can somehow get to 100 so that Jesus can come back. Are you tracking with me? Right? The good news about the sacrifice is you're not in the ditch anymore, but you still got to get there. The only problem with that is that is only 50% of the gospel. And that's exactly what God's trying to teach here. He goes, no, no, it's not enough for the sacrifice. This one's not just interceding for you for your folly. It's not just the intercession that matters. It's the acceptance that matters. I will accept him. And here is the great truth of the gospel that I wish I had known years ago. I wish I'd known this when I was a kid. I wish this had been explained to me. Maybe it was out there. I don't want to say the church didn't know this because let's just be honest. If I'm the only one to have figured this out, then it's not true. (laughs) Okay. Because if it was something that was just out of my brain, it cannot be right. (laughs) Okay. But the good news is because I was double checking when someone told me, I was like, no, no, no. Okay. It's everywhere in the Bible. And there was a lot of smart people, even smarter than me that knew this a long time ago. For whatever reason, we've just lost sight of it, but it's always been there. And it's this, Jesus did not just come to die for you. Jesus came to live for you. And by his life, you are accepted. And I need to explain that for a moment. And to explain that, we need to go again to a guy that uses a lot of alliterations right out of Job. You might remember last night to help understand the whole idea of the pain God is going through, the pain that creation is going through, we went to the nutty professor of the New Testament known as Paul the Apostle. And we went to Romans 8 where he was talking about the groaning of the earth, the groaning of the, the saints, the groaning of the spirit, that the whole universe is just groaning in agony waiting for the pain to stop, waiting for this thing to be solved. Paul also picks up on this part of Job. And to prove that point, go to Romans chapter 5. Oh, wait till you see this. Woo-wee. I'm getting excited already. The whole week I was preaching trying to get to this. Oh, wow. Okay, anyway, sorry, even, even the phone cannot help but speak, right? Romans chapter 5, we're going to pick it up in verse 10. Oh, watch this. Who? This is like probably my favorite verse in Romans. I mean, well, my favorite verse seems to change by day what I'm reading, but anyway. Uh, in Romans, this is probably a good chance. Okay, here we go. Paul is going to summarize this thing about acceptance. Here we go. For if while, and you might have even read this before or heard of this before, but we're going to look at it slowly so you don't miss something. If for while we were enemies, we were, what's the next word? Reconciled to God. Pause. What does reconciled mean? Might be important to know the terms that are being used. Or else you just assume they mean something and they might be wrong. (laughs) What does it mean to be reconciled? Okay, I'm going to give you an example. Let's say I have an issue with Nick. I'm going to pick on Nick because he's sitting right here. And we're great friends, and we love each other, and we know each other forever. And then we have a fight, probably over something stupid, and, and whatever. And there's now a separation that's taken place because we don't want to look at each other. We don't want to talk to each other. You know, I'm just jealous because he's got the Jesus-like hair, and I don't, and, you know, whatever. Um, sorry, I couldn't resist. He's like, ah, okay, now I need reconciliation for truth. All right, but anyway, here's the thing. So that separation's taken place. 
And let's say, because we're both hopefully good Christians, or good Christians is an oxymoron, but at least a Christian, right? And we come together, and I apologize. There's some sort of process that happens where I'm like, I'm sorry, that was dumb. And he's like, yeah, I know, you were dumb, but I was also dumb, and, and whatever. And we work that out. Well, we agreed that the relationship goes back to the way it was before the misunderstanding, before the issue, right? What reconciliation means is you're put back together again. Okay, that's literally all it means, to be reconciled. You're, just, you're going back to the way it was. Does that make sense to everybody? Okay, so watch. He says, we are reconciled to God by what? By the death of what? His son. Okay, this is the part of the gospel that I, hopefully most all of you, if you're attached to a church, have heard this part before. Okay, you are, you are, you are disconnected. You are separated from God. Jesus dies, the chasm is closed, you're back together, you're back at zero, you're back at ground zero, dunk, okay, but notice he's not done, much more having been reconciled, put back together, we shall be, what's the next term, saved by what, by his life, now normally, the way I used to read this growing up is you read straight through it and you think Paul's repeating himself right? Okay, we were reconciled and he died, and we're saved because he died, right? Because that's how we think in English, like death and his life. Well, that means he gave his life, and so therefore it's the same thing. He's just saying we're saved and we're reconciled by his death. Isn't that normally how we look at it? The only problem with that is that's not what he's saying. It's two different things because he's contrasting it. It goes, therefore, since we've been reconciled by the what? Death. Therefore, because that's taken place, we're going to be saved by what? By his life, Okay, oh man, oh, somebody might have just gotten it already. That's cool, because you're just going to be on long for the ride on a joy ride. Here we go. His life is the thing that saves us. His death puts you at zero. His life is what saves you. To another illustration before I just blow this open, biblically speaking, with several illustrations, and I'm glad they're recording it, because, you know, you probably want to have to re-listen to it to get the references here, because we're going to have to move to try and condense this. It'd be like if I got on an airplane. How many of you have flown on an airplane before? Okay, good. You might understand this illustration then. Let's pretend I'm getting on an airplane, all right? And I'm getting on the airplane, and this is going to be good. And for some reason, of course, this never happens, but let's say something went haywire or whatever, and they upgrade me to first class. And I know, yeah, but it never will happen. But let's just, for the sake of the illustration, let's say that happens. And so I sit down in the first class seat, and I turn, and there's this kind of lanky, weird, little spidery-looking guy sitting there. And we take off, and I start speaking. I'm like, oh, what's your name? And he's like, I'm Mark. And we start talking. And he goes, what are you doing? I go, well, I just left Lake Junaluska. We were doing this camp meeting. It was pretty cool and all of that. And, you know, yay. And he goes, okay, cool. And I'm like, well, what do you do? And he goes, um, I, I run a company uh, that deals with technology. And I go, oh, well, that's really cool. What does it do? And he goes, well, open your phone. I go, what? And he goes, see that F right there in the blue box? That's uh, mine. And I realize I'm sitting next to Mark Zuckerberg. Everyone know who that is? Founder of Facebook, if you didn't get my reference, right? And we start talking, and all of a sudden I'm nervous because I'm sitting next to the guy, you know, that they make all the lizard memes about and all that other stuff, <laughs> right? And I'm just like, oh, my goodness, this is a guy. And we're talking on the plane, and finally, for whatever reason, he's like, you know, Henry, you're kind of nerdy and you're kind of weird, but I like that, and I would love to stay in touch. I wish you could be part of my club. And I go, oh, okay. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, I know. All right. Uh, what club is that? And he goes, it's the Billionaire's Club. <laughs> okay. Now I'm upset. Why am I upset? Yeah, because I don't have, you know, I, I, I like got zero dollars. 
okay? There's no way I can be part of the billionaire's club, right? So I have this kind of look of disgust and dejection, and all of a sudden Mark's like, oh, <laughs> that's right. Uh, let me guess, you don't have a billion dollars, you know, because everyone would have a billion, you know. Do you have a billion? <laughs> you don't have it, do you? Like, no, I'm a pastor, <laughs> right? You know, and he's like, televangelist? No, 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 maybe them, but no, no, no. Anyway, so, right, does that talk. So finally he goes, okay, I can solve that, right? Now, I would be tempted at this moment to use something called a check, but none of you know what that is, so we're going to switch the illustration. Okay, so then, he pulls, so then he pulls out his phone, and they got the Wi-Fi on the plane, and he, of course, pays for it because he's got boo billions, right? And he goes, okay, I'm going to, like, cash app you. Hey, <laughs> see, I'm relevant. Okay, anyway, all right, I'm going to cash app, right? I'm going to cash app you $1 billion, and he goes, did, 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 bing, right? And it comes through, and, like, you want to cry because you see all the zeros <laughs> after the one. And, like, my phone begins to melt down because it never thought it would see this, right? You know, all of that. And, all right, so he's just sent me $1 billion. Now, how many of you would be really excited at this moment? <laughs> oh, yeah. Okay, just one thing I didn't tell you about this illustration. Um, I got on the plane, true, after camp meeting, but Sunday, because it's been a stressful week for me, I went to the Cherokee Casino. Don't do that. Um, it's just an illustration. Just, just dream with me. I just got to make this to work. So I, go to the, so I go to the casino, and for some reason I dupe them, and they think I've got money or whatever. They give me an unlimited tab by accident or something, and I stink at poker and everything else and all the stuff we should not be doing. Right, and I'm just, you know, <laughs> just pulling the machines, and I can't get any of the strawberries or whatever to line up or whatever it is. Sorry, I only play apps. Anyway, right, so you do all that, and I'm actually $1 billion in debt. And I'm getting on this plane because I'm trying to determine how I can get over the wall to Mexico, <laughs> right, to escape the police that are going to put me in a cell with Bubba, Okay. And that's what I'm trying to do. I know my brain is a really twisted place. But anyway, so I'm going to do that. So all of a sudden he looks at me and he goes, what's wrong? And I've got to admit to this man that, well, you know, what you've done is extremely generous and beyond comprehension and has given me more than I ever thought I could get. Unfortunately, and then I confess to him the tale, I am a billion dollars in debt. So when Mark cash apped me a billion dollars, am I part of the billionaires club? No, I'm part of the broke as a joke but out of debt free club right? So what would I need to be part of the billionaires club? Another billion dollars, right? Because the first one just canceled out the debt. It just put me, it reconciled me back to zero. Well, guess what? God understands that. As dumb as that illustration was, that was my best attempt to illustrate what Paul's saying. When Jesus died, all he did was wipe out the debt. You're back at zero, but you're not part of the righteous everything swell club. You know what I'm saying is true. You're not part of it, right? And so this is why our churches look like, like some sort of bad zombie movie, right? Because we know that's done, and then we spend the rest of our time beating ourselves up, losing hope, thinking we're never going to make it, doing everything we can trying to get the other billion dollars, and we never can add up, Right? So guess what God did? He knew that ahead of time. He goes, I'm not just going to die and clear the debt. I'm going to live your life for you so that you get the other billion. And some of you are like, wait a minute, how does that, wait, what, what? Okay, 
Hold on to your horses. Here come some biblical examples to prove what I'm trying to say here. Jesus ended up, think about it, because if all Jesus had to do was die, Herod would have done that when he was a kid. And if you want to argue theologically, like, well, he would have been a kid, and he wouldn't have known, it wouldn't have been a conscious choice, fine. We know at least from 12, according to the Gospels, he knew what he was doing. At least from 12, when he saw the lamb and said, this is the lamb that takes, right, he knew that. So at least from 12 he could. Why does he live 33 and a half years of pain before he dies? Why does he, keep, why does he delay and keep getting out of people trying to kill him until he thinks he's accomplished something, and he's like, okay, now they can kill me? Right, because remember, he said they didn't catch him. They didn't take him. He said, I lay it down voluntarily. So he apparently reached a point where he's like, okay, I've done what I needed to do. Now you can do it, right? Why does he live that long? Because he was living your and my life for me. And more than that, he was living everyone's life for them. And here's how to prove it. Two examples tonight that hopefully will just blow your world. And we're going to go fast, but you can listen to the references on the recording, hopefully, and find it yourself. There's a couple references that Paul uses to do this. Some of you may have heard of this. In 1 Corinthians 15, starting in verse 45, I think 45 to 47, Paul says something about Jesus rather fascinating. He says, Jesus is the last Adam. Anyone heard that phrase before? Jesus is the last Adam. Who was the first Adam? (laughs) Uh, That was a dumb question. Yes. Adam. Yes, the first one in Genesis. Okay. That was the first man. This is a human being, right? He was at zero, but he messed it up, right? Because Adam willfully rebelled, right? He quit. Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled right? So he goes, and does anyone remember in Genesis 3, what is the consequence to that happening? There's a couple consequences given. I know I'm being kind of picking on you. You don't have to be Bible scholars, but if anyone knows, help me out. What are the things that happens? God says, okay, there's some consequences that are coming your way. Okay, yeah, you're going to have, the ground is going to resist him in the form of, anyone remember? What was the specific thing he said the earth was going to start doing to him? Okay, he's going to have to till the ground, yes, but he said the plants are going to grow what? They're going to be thorns, so that's one consequence. You're going to get thorns, and then he says by the blank of your brow, you're going to have to get food. Sweat, so now you've got thorns and sweat, and then he said, right, from the dust you are, and to the dust you will what? So he goes, you're going to be naked again, and you're going to die, right? So the penalty is thorns, sweat, nakedness, and death. Right, because they were trying to cover themselves up and do everything. You're going to die. Everyone clear on that? Think about this for a moment. What things do the gospel writers all specifically mention about Jesus as he's dying? What's the first thing they put on him? Thorns. And then in the garden it says he began to sweat blood. Great drops of blood, right? Starts doing that, and then they put him on a cross, and how did he go on that cross? And I hate to blow it for you, but all the little paintings with the little loincloth, um, that's not true. Okay, because in in the cross was supposed to be the most humiliating thing they could do to someone. They crucified you naked. There was no loincloth for Jesus. Okay, so he's naked up there. And then what's the end of result, obviously, of the cross? He dies. See, here's what happens. Jesus comes back and he decides he's going to live Adam's life again for him. But where Adam willfully rebelled, Jesus willfully surrenders, right? Where Adam is unfaithful, Jesus is faithful. And so then Jesus takes Adam's penalty so that Adam can have Jesus' reward. 
Are you following this? He flips this. Which, by the way, the parallels keep continuing because, remember, it's kind of like the old, the, old, the old saying, Adam slept and out of his side came Eve, right, the woman. Jesus slept and out of his side came the church, the woman. Right? Maybe I just confused some people about that illustration. Right? We'll stick with some stuff more concretely then. Right? So he takes that. But if that didn't get your boat, guess what? Jesus faces the same temptations as Adam and Eve. Did you know that? And he faces it by the same guy. Does anyone remember a story in Matthew 4, right, where Jesus, and not only that, he, do, he faces it in even worse conditions. Jesus has just been baptized. He comes out of the water, and it says the Spirit drives him into the wilderness, and he goes into the wilderness, and he stays there nearly starving to death. This is key, nearly starving to death. Everything's working against him, and then who shows up? Satan. By the way, who showed up at the tree in Genesis? Yeah, Satan, the serpent, or Leviathan. Yeah, he's quoting it like Job. Yes, we could say Leviathan shows up, right? Leviathan shows up, and remember what was the first thing the serpent told Eve? Yeah, can you not eat of anything around here? I thought God said you couldn't eat of everything, right? What's the first thing Leviathan says to Jesus there in the desert? Well, if you were the son of God, right, turn these stones into what? Bread. And at first you go, I don't see how that's similar. Well, it doesn't seem similar on the surface until you see what he's getting at. Remember, in the garden, the idea of, I thought you could eat from everything. He's basically saying God's restricting you. You don't have anything to eat. You know, you're, you're being limited unfairly, right? You're being restricted for no good reason. Here's the thing. When Satan shows up to Jesus, he's not eaten in how long? 40 days. And most of us focus on the if you're the son of God part that he's like trying to trick him out. He's like, well, you know, but he's making another point. He goes, has God deliberately placed the son of God in a state of ruthless and cruel deprivation to the point where he will not take care of you? He's restricting from you food. Like you just got baptized. I thought like you were the one and now God is somehow restricting you for no good reason. No one should have to go 40 days with no food. Are you tracking with me here? You're not, he's, you're being restricted for no good reason. God's restricting you for no good reason, right? Well, Jesus doesn't take the bait. We know that. So what's the next temptation? You remember this story? Then he picks him up and he takes him up to the pinnacle of the temple. And he quotes some scripture and he basically goes, jump off. Right? Go jump, basically. Satan's been waiting to say that to God for a long time. Right? Go jump, and then what will happen to you? Yeah, the angels will, will, will catch you, but notice how he does it. He quotes Scripture, doesn't he? Watch what he's doing. I thought, considering this promise of God, which, by the way, he is quoting Psalm 91. Just want to know where he's getting that. He goes, here's a promise of God. So jump. And if God doesn't do anything about it, then he's obviously lying to you. Yeah, that'd be comforting. Yeah, well, when he's dead, yeah. But think about it. What was the second thing the serpent said to Eve? She goes, I can't touch that. I can't take, no, God's not restricting us. We just can't have it because we would die if we, we had it. And what does he say? You won't die. You surely will not die. And what's the implication there? God's lying to you. Telling the same thing to Jesus. Oh, here's a promise of God. Jump. The angels will catch you. And if they don't, well, then God's been lying to you this whole time. 
You can't trust him. He's lying to you. God rebukes him again, right? And so then Satan really plays his hand. He takes him straight up to a mountain, shows him everything on the earth, which, by the way, at that point, that's a very telling passage because he says, look at all the kingdoms of the earth. He says, all these things have been given to me and I can give them to you. Pause right there. Where did he get it? Well, Adam and Eve gave it to him. It's a whole different talk if you haven't been here the previous nights, right? The whole idea, just the same thing he claimed in Job, I came from walking to and fro on the earth. I'm the representative, it's mine, right? So he goes to Jesus, this is all mine, but I would give it to you if what? If you would just bow down and worship me, right? Basically, he goes, solve this in a way that won't cost your life. In fact, all you have to do is just surrender a little bit of pride, and if you would just bow down to me, we could solve this whole thing right here. In other words, do something for yourself for once. Just make this easy right? You don't have to die. You don't have to risk anything. All you have to do is bow, and I'll give it all to you. Well, remember, what was the last thing that the serpent told Adam and Eve, right? Eve, primarily in the story, obviously. But what does he tell her? If you eat this, you would become like what? God knowing good and evil. The implication being, why does God not want them to eat it? Because God's only looking out for who? Self. Remember that? That's why Eve's like, okay, I'll take care of myself. She saw it was good for her. Here's the thing. He goes, hey, why don't you just look out for yourself? This will be really easy. You don't have to die. You don't have to suffer. No more of this. No more of the puny humans. None of this. You can have the old earth. Just bow. Is anyone seeing any similarities here? Jesus takes Adam's place, but where Adam screwed it up, he got it right. And so some of you are like, well, I don't know. That seems like a little bit of a stretch. I think you're kind of reading into that trying to prove a point. Fine. We'll try the other thing that the Bible says. It also calls Jesus the true Israel. Now that one you might be like, I don't remember that exact phrase, the, the, the true Israel. Okay, well, yeah, you would miss it if you didn't understand Hebrew mythology and, and Hebrew scripture typing. Scripture typing, that's an app. Good grief. <laughs> scripture allusions, thank you. That's the word I'm looking for. I'm getting so excited. Watch this. When you read the First Testament, there is a symbol that is used over and over and over and over and over and over again for Israel. Does anyone know what it is? Okay, well, God's children, that's the title he gives it. I'll I'll tell you. And I think the reason we miss this is because a lot of us skip the minor prophets. Because they're minor, right? They must not be important. Here's the thing. Israel is always referred to as a vine. Right? He says, this vine I took out of Egypt and I planted here in this field. Has anyone ever wonder why Jesus is always using parables about vines and vineyards? Right? He's doing this because the Jews would know who he's talking about because that was their thing. Right? They're the vine. Right? Isaiah talks about that. Hosea talks about that. Obadiah talks about that. Ezekiel talks about that. Right? You see these illustrations. He's like, what good is a vine for if it's you know, already cut off and burnt? You, know, burnt? you just burn it. You can't make furniture out of it. You can't hang a hat on it. Right? This kind of thing. He's like, you're a vine, you're a vine, you're a vine. Do you remember this point where Jesus, right before the crucifixion, he goes into the garden in John 15, and he goes, I am the what? No, he says something else. I am the, close, I am the true vine. Why is he talking about true vines? Here's the thing. To me, right, you know, we read that, and in the West, we think he's just talking about, ah, oh, here's another illustration. I'm in a garden. There's a vine. I'm the vine, and you are the branches. No, he's making a key point. He goes, I am Israel. I'm the true Israel. 
I'm the true vine. Any Jew, his disciples were Jews, who would have been walking with him and they heard him say, I am the true vine, would have been like, what? He goes, no, no, I'm the true one. I'm really Israel. And as if to prove this point, the gospel writers all knew that's what he meant, and Matthew especially, because Matthew loves to bring up the fact that he is the true vine. And now we're going to prove it in a way that you'll know. I can't just be twisting this together. It makes sense. Follow me here. Just the first five chapters of Matthew will help you out. What's chapter one of Matthew? Okay, well, there's some genealogy, but basically chapter one and two is about what? Jesus is born. Christmas story. He is born. Where is he born? Okay, he's born in the city of David, so in the promised land. But then immediately after that, you have the wise men and everybody shows up. And then Herod wants to do what? Kill him. So what happens? He goes to where? Egypt. Why does he go to Egypt? Okay, well, duh, because he's going to get killed. But why did they go to Egypt? Why couldn't they go somewhere else? Why did they know to go to Egypt? Okay, an angel told who? Told his dad, Joseph, in a what? In a dream, in a vision, to go to Egypt. So he goes to Egypt. Chapter 3, for some reason, we skip the whole childhood in Egypt. We don't learn anything about it. He comes out, and the next story in Matthew 3 is he goes to the Jordan River, where what happens? He's baptized. He goes into the water. He comes out. And then you get this weird thing where it says the Spirit drove him where? Into the wilderness. So he comes out of the water, and he goes into a desert. And how long is he there? Forty days, where he is tempted. By who? Satan, right? Chapter 5. Jesus comes out of the desert. And he sits on a mountain and delivers a sermon, the Sermon on the Mount, where, yes, there's the Beatitudes, but in that sermon he says things like, you have heard it said, don't commit adultery, but I tell you. You have heard it said, do not murder, but I tell you. You have heard it said, what, what is he quoting? Ten Commandments. And who's on the mountain with him? He's surrounded by who? Well, yeah, all these children of Israel, and then who is he picked out of that whole group? Disciples. How many of them? Twelve. Okay, pause right there, and we're going to back up to the First Testament for a moment. In the book of Genesis, there's a guy named Isaac who is known as Israel. He's the first one to get the name, Israel, okay? And how many sons does Israel have? Twelve. I mean, Jake, yeah, I'm saying Isaac, which is the dad of Jacob. Excuse me. Thank, very good Bible students, yes. I'm trying to say Jacob. <laughs> yes, I love corporate worship. All right. Yes, Jacob, thank you, who become, yeah, Isaac. Isaac would not be laughing at that fact that I messed it up right now. <laughs> okay, someone got that. Thank you. Okay, anyway, yeah, Jacob, who becomes Israel, thank you, and he has 12 sons, okay? But what happens? What's going to happen in the story? They're living where? The promised land, okay? But then he's got one particular son that has an issue. Well, gift slash issue. Who is that? Joseph. And what's he known for? Dreams. And because of his dreams, his brothers do what? Sell him where? To the Ishmaelites who take him to Egypt. Now, while he's in Egypt, a famine hits eventually after God takes care of everything in Egypt for him. And so now Israel and his 11 sons that are left They have to go where to survive so they do not die? Egypt. 
And what allows them to move to Egypt and hang out there and not die? A guy named Joseph had dreams. Is this clicking for anybody? Okay. So eventually they have to come out of Egypt because the slavery thing is not cool. Right? And when they exit, they have to end up going where? Through the Red Sea, they go into some water and out the other side into the desert. Paul says they were baptized into the Red Sea. Again, in Corinthians, talking about that. So they're, in a sense, baptized. They come out. They go into the desert for how long? Well, they're stuck there for 40 years. It should have been a journey that took them only 40 days, but they were there. And here's the thing. They were tempted by who while they were there? The devil. And they also stopped in a mountain, didn't they? And at the mountain, what do they get? The Ten Commandments, which they apparently don't get by the time of Jesus, so he has to re-explain it to them sitting on a mountain. Right? And by the way, when they were tempted of the devil in the wilderness, Moses is messed up. He writes them a book to help them resist temptation while they have to stay in the wilderness for 40 years. Does anyone know what book he writes? Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy, the second retelling of the law. Okay, nerd moment. Jesus, when he's tempted in the wilderness by the devil, he responds three times what? It is written, and then he quotes... Scripture, guess what's the only book he quotes all three of those things out of? Deuteronomy. Why? Because that was the book the Israelites had in their wilderness temptations. Jesus is going to use it in his wilderness temptation. He's basically retracing the steps of Israel, the steps of Adam. And in fact, if I had time, I could go through every single Bible character in the First Testament and how Jesus relives it. I'll give you another illustration. Does anyone remember a guy named David? King David? Great guy, except for all of his problems. Right? And he had this one particular problem. We mentioned it already in our story because Job kind of alludes to it, the story of Absalom. Remember that guy? His son, he's starting a rebellion. He's going to go. Well, if you go back into the First Testament and read about that rebellion, it says that when Absalom gathers his armies and he's coming to Jerusalem, David, the rightful king, instead of standing and fighting and facing his enemy, what does he do? It says he gets up and runs, but it says he gets up and runs very specifically. He gathers his family. He gathers the few people he will, and it says he goes out of Jerusalem. He crosses the brook Kidron and then heads up the Mount of Olives to go out the other side to flee. Right? And then there's that guy that's like cursing him and throwing stuff at him when he's going up the hill, right? Okay, follow me here. Right before the crucifixion, it says Jesus, when he's done with the Last Supper, what does he do? It says he goes out of Jerusalem, does what? Crosses the brook Kidron, and he goes up what? Mount of Olives. Why is he going there? Why is he going there? couple reasons one obviously to pray but the second thing is who has already left the party judas and judas wants to do what betray him here's the thing where does jesus always go that garden where's going to be the first place judas looks for him that garden and you know that because he just shows up really short order like, like, they didn't even have time to go search in the whole city. You get the idea that he goes up there and he's praying a little bit. Next thing you hear, come all these soldiers and here comes Judas. Here's the thing. Jesus leaves the city. He crosses the brook Kidron. He goes up the Mount of Olives, but he goes to face his enemy instead of flee it. Why is he doing that? Because he's got to fix David's problem. Right? 
He keeps going through and through and through and through everybody's life. What about this famous chapter? And I know we're going fast, but go back tonight and even read some of this. What about that famous chapter we always use about people that get their life together so that we can go? What about Hebrews 11, the faith chapter? Anyone remember that? Right? The hall of faith, we call it. Right? Turn there real quick. Look at this. Hebrews 11. Okay, let's look at all these heroes for a second and then see if you notice something. Let's jump down. Let's see. Where would be a good place? Well, let's just pick it up here with Moses. Why not? This would be fun. Pick it up in verse 23. By faith, Moses, when he was born was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith, Moses, when he grew up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. And now look at this next part. By faith, he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. Pause. Does anyone remember that story? How does Moses leave Egypt? Yeah, Moses thought he had a brilliant idea to help God out. He knew he had to free the Israelites, so he thought he could kill one at a time, hide them in the sand, and no one would notice the lumps. Okay, and everybody saw it. So, like, the next day when he shows up, they're like, what, you're going to kill us like the Egypt, right? And he runs for his life. Did the writer of Hebrews miss something here? says he left, and he wasn't afraid, but we clearly read Genesis, you know, Exodus, uh, and he was afraid. Okay, um, let's just jump down to verse 32. Surely a few other stories they got right. And one more shall I say, for time will fail if I tell of Gideon. Anyone remember this dude? Uh, what is he known for? This is the book of Judges in the First Testament, by the way. Right, this is the guy that the whole story is a farce, Okay. Right, God shows up, right, an angel starts talking to him, and the first thing out of Gideon's mouth is, angels don't talk to us anymore. Yes, exactly, like that. You know, doing that kind of thing. Then he has no faith, right, so he does a test once, a test twice, a test thrice, right? Then he gets all these armies, right, and then the army, he's like, too big, and he's like, Ugh. Right, and then he goes and he and he does this fight, right? And then we end the Bible story there because we're like, wow, what a hero! Except that's not where his story ends. Does anyone know what the last thing we see of Gideon is in the Bible, other than this reference? You know what the last thing he does is after they've defeated the Midianites? He sets up his son basically as a ruler over Israel, and then takes the money from the people and makes an idol out of it, and causes like an idol cult to begin. He starts an idol community. The great hero, Gideon, starts an idol community. And he's in the faith chapter. What about Barak? He's also in a lot of these next characters right here in Judges, like the worst book in the Bible. Right? Barak, this is the guy with no faith. So that the prophetess Deborah has to come along. And then she doesn't even get the victory. Another woman gets the victory by driving a tent stake into the guy's head after he drinks milk. <laughs> the health message. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> right? Don't drink milk. Try almond milk. No, okay. All right, what about Samson? What about Samson? His last great act is a suicide. Right? 
All because, ladies, guys, all right, guys, bonus point just for you. Here's the thing. Was Samson called of God? Yes or no? Yes. But here's the thing. A calling of God is not the same as the character to fulfill the calling. Samson did not change his character to fulfill the calling. You can be called no matter how bad your character is. But that doesn't mean you're going to be equipped to do it if you just sit back and do nothing. Right? You know, here's the thing. He, is a, he just wants to hang out with women that he doesn't need to be with, and then he kills himself, and that's the end of the story. Right? What about Jephthah? Heard of that guy? Uh, this is the guy that God tells, like, repeatedly, I will be with you and defeat it, and he still makes this stupid promise, whatever the first thing is that walks out of my house, I will offer to you if I win. And he's coming home, and his daughter excitedly runs out the house, like, yay, 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 and what does he do? Kills his daughter. And some of you are like, well, the scholars say he did No, 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 no. You read Jewish rabbinical literature, and every single piece of Jewish rabbinical literature faults Jephthah because they say he killed his daughter. So the Jews who wrote this story are in no doubt that he killed his daughter. And he's in what chapter? Uh, the faith chapter. And, of course, David's more well-known, you know, Bathsheba, uh, murder, all that. Here's the thing. Why are these people in the faith chapter? I thought these were the people that had everything together, and if we're just like Job and like them, we could have it together, we would be good. Why are they there? What gives them the right to be there when it's clear they're messed up. What gives Job the right to be called righteous and having done the right thing and having not sin when we just read a whole book where he doesn't seem to have it together? Where he's repenting in chapter 42 for saying stuff bad, for having it wrong, for not understanding. Why do all of these characters all of a sudden get such a glowing record? Final hand. The lost in Revelation are judged out of what? The books are opened, right? Books, plural. What are the saved listed in? The book, singular, of life. The Lamb's book of life. Why is it only one book versus a lot of books? Why would that be? I'll tell you why it would be. Because you want to know what the Lamb's book of life is? It's Jesus' life with your name written in front of it. I don't think you got that. Lamb's book of life is Jesus' life record with your name written in front of it. The book of life, the Lamb's book of life, is the Lamb's record with your name written in front of it. The reason there's a faith chapter, the reason why Job gets called righteous when you just read this whole story and like, wait, what? He's like acting, I mean, he's he's saying horrible. The reason all of this is the case is because someone has interceded for Job. Someone has interceded for the friends. Someone has interceded for you and for me and for Jephthah and for David and for Adam and for Israel, and his name is Jesus. And God says, I will accept him. The solution to the pain and the suffering and all this stuff we go through, here's the great thing, and I'm not just saying, well, you know, just accept that and the pain's gone. Here's the thing. You go through a lot. We go through a lot in pain, don't we? Don't we struggle? Don't we ask questions? Don't we do things we regret? Isn't the whole thing just one big disaster? Isn't that what suffering is? Hasn't Job gone through that? Guess why he can come out the end on the other side? Because he's not through 
with the mistakes. He's not through with the struggles. He's not through with the questionings because God's not holding the questions, the doubts, the fears, the pain, the misunderstanding against him. He is putting Jesus' life record over Job. And he goes, I will accept him. He will pray for you and I will accept him. The solution to the evil, and we still have another half chapter, so if you're like, that doesn't sound like it's done with. Here's the point. Before we even get to that, God didn't want Job or you or me to misunderstand something, and it is this. You are accepted not because of your struggles, because of your doubts, because of your questions, because of your venting, because of your what, you, because what you do in pain. God understands. He says, I know it's a messy business to get through it, so guess what? I've taken care of it. I haven't just gotten you to zero. I've covered you with my story. You are not toast. All I see is my record. You can do what you need to get through pain because I don't see the mistakes. I don't see the questions. I don't see the bad things you say. I don't see the venting. I don't see. I've taken care of that because I went through the pain and then I did it right where you and I always struggle. And he goes, and I will give you that record. I will accept him in your place. I will accept him in your place. I will accept him in your place. Jesus was accepted in Job's place. Jesus was accepted in the friend's place. Jesus can be accepted in your place. The question is, do you want him in your place? Do you want him in your place? I know some of you are going through a lot, still going through a lot. The book of Job hasn't changed that you're going through a lot. What I hope it has changed is that not only are you more aware of why stuff is happening, but I want you to know that while you're in the midst of doing that, while you're struggling with the messiness that is life and suffering and evil and pain, while we struggle waiting for the final end of those things, and we'll talk about how that ends tomorrow, Jesus gives you the good news that the struggle is not your end. The struggle will not ruin you. The struggle does not upset God as you go through it. Jesus' record can be yours. What's going to give you the power to get through the pain and suffering of your life? The fact that you have the freedom to deal with it as you need to deal with it because God has already taken care of how the perfect way to get through it is. Jesus has done it. He didn't just die so you can meddle on and have to figure it out how you're going to. He goes, no, 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 I took care of it all. All of it. I've been through it before. I've been through it again. And I'll see you through to the other side. And if you fall a few times along the way, you're not toast. You go through that pain. You say the thing you wish you hadn't of. You inflict pain on someone. He goes, you know, that's not the end. I'm not going to hit the judgment. I'm going to be like, he's not going to do that. He goes, because I have prayed for you. And I will accept Jesus. I will accept him. That's how you're going to get through it because I've already taken care of it. I've guaranteed you'll make the end. Covered you through it. 
And there's some of you here tonight that have been trying really hard to deal with your pain and suffering. And you beat yourself up even worse because of the mistakes you've made along the way, the ways you can't seem to get over your pain, the ways you've handled it wrong, and everything. And you just add to your pain by thinking you're toast, you're through. But the news tonight from Job is that you're not through. You've got Jesus. You've got his life in your place. He got it right where you get it wrong. And that's okay because God's going to accept that life. You think he's going to turn Jesus away? Think he's going to show up to the end time and be like, ah, Jesus, you know, you didn't make it. Jesus has made it. And guess what? If that's the life record you face, how are you not making it? Are you done trying to make it yourself? Are you done trying to solve pain yourself? Are you done trying to hope you'll put it all together so you can make it in the end? Well, then God's got good news for you. You don't have to do it anymore. You can just give it to him. And he guarantees he'll finish it. He'll solve it. He's got you. He's got this. But you have to decide whether you want him to cover you or not. You have to decide if you want Jesus to solve it for you. Because he's not going to force himself on you. He's not going to do that. We're going to be singing a song. As we do that, I want to make a very specific appeal. There's someone in here that not only have you been going through pain, because we all do that, but you've been trying to solve it on your own, and you become more and more and more and more and more discouraged because the pain isn't going away, and you seem to be making everything worse, and you just don't know how you're going to make it. And Jesus tonight is saying, you know what? Tonight, I need you to stop trying to do it yourself. Just let me take care of it. Just let my record stand in your place. Don't let me just die for you. Let me live for you. Let my record count for you. Know that I am accepted of God. And if you are in me, so are you. There's someone here tonight that needs the assurance that in the midst of your pain, in the midst of your struggles, and all that you don't understand and you don't get, you need the assurance that you are accepted and that you are okay and that you will make it. And that can be yours tonight. It can be yours tonight. It's already provided. All God's asking is that you stop trying to do it yourself and just say, God, you do it. You do it. They're going to sing a song, and as they do, if you want to say to the Lord, God, I'm sick of doing it myself, I'll let you do it. You fix it. Your record. Your life. You just, you just, you finish this for me. And I'm going to invite you to come right here to the front, and when we're done with the song, we're going to pray together. Pray together if you come to the front as we sing this song. Come forward if you want Jesus to do what you cannot do. If you want Jesus to do it all instead of yourself. And we're singing this song. <laughs> Let's have a word of prayer, shall we? 
Father, it almost seems too good to be true. That you take care of all of it. And we don't have to take care of ourselves. You will. We thank you that you accept him. And not only that you accept him, but you accept us. And all of our pain and all of our struggles and all of our mistakes. You go, you know, that's okay. I've got it taken care of. I love you and you're mine because I accept Jesus and I accept you. Father, thank you for my brothers and sisters here. Thank you that they don't have to live in the lies anymore. You know, they, have to, they don't have to live under the burdens anymore. Thank you that you've got it. Thank you that we are declared righteous because you are righteous and you have lived our lives for us. Pray you'd wrap them in your arms. Help them know that they're going to make it. We're going to make it because you made it. And you never fail. Wrap us in your arms and carry us across that finish line. And thank you that now we get to always be together. Together with you, together with each other and soon together without pain. Soon it will all be over. And we don't have to worry if that will be the case because you've already done it. You've got this. Be with all of our other brothers and sisters that are seated. Wrap them in your arms too. Help them know you've got them. You've got us all. If we would just let you take care of us. So we give ourselves to you. And we say, like Job, we heard a lot about you. But now we see with our eyes. We see Jesus and what a beautiful name it is. We love you because you first loved us. And we choose to trust in your love in the midst of our pain. For we say it in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.